0: You are beautiful, you are so strong, you're amazing. Like Every day of life is a blank sheet of paper.
1: More happy days in our lives. Small, small changes.
0: had to just be with life.
1: To really practice mindfulness. I am not my thought. It's not
0: easy, but it's very simple. Amen. If you put those two things together, you know, the sky is the limit.
1: Today's guest is Scott Anderson, and welcome Scott to the show.
0: Thank you so much, Annie. It's great to be here.
1: If there, imagine there is a commercial about you, like three to five minutes, one, two, three minutes. What would it say? <laughs> what would it say about Scott Anderson?
0: Oh, that's so hard. I coach entrepreneurs and consult with entrepreneurial businesses. Um, and I've done that for quite some time. I'm also a serial entrepreneur and uh, have started a total of nine businesses myself, um, which I've sold all but two of them. And um, I'm also a licensed mental health therapist and do a lot of work in the area of uh, trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, I started an organization called At Ease USA, which is uh, specifically focusing, focusing on um, military PTSD, but also PTSD with women who have been affected by Uh, sexual assault and domestic violence, and children who have experienced uh, domestic violence. And um, so today I uh, uh, spend most of my time uh, in the U.S., though I I hope that the borders are opening more. I'd really like to be in Italy right now or perhaps visit you in Georgia. I'd love to come to Georgia. Uh, I've heard it's a beautiful country.
1: Yes, it is. Can you... uh... Before we talk about the burnout and how important it is, can you quickly, not quickly, but as much as it needs, can you talk about what is PTSD? Because in Georgia, we don't have that much labels as we have in the U.S. We don't have eating disorder. We don't have names. Obviously, we have all those disorders, but we don't have labels. We don't have ADHD. No, I have never heard of someone having ADHD here. We don't have any labels for those kind of things, and what is what is it, and um, how can we help people? How can we help people identify it first, and sure. then what are some tools that you use to help people with PTSD?
0: Yeah, post-traumatic stress disorder, and it's interesting that you mentioned that there are no labels. And in a lot of ways, I'm not labels can be useful, but they can also be really not useful um, because we. Anytime we try to simplify or, or sort of uh, discount a human being down to one word or, or merely initials, I think we're doing them a disservice and we're doing their life and their, their experience a disservice. Um, the, the useful part about labels is that sometimes people have uh, symptoms, experience um, common uh, feelings and and uh, thoughts that are uh, are common enough across a large group of people that labels can be useful. Um, post-traumatic stress disorder is uh, unfortunately has been used in the media so generally that it is it's sort of stopped meaning anything because everyone claims to have at least in the West everybody claims to have PTSD about anything from, waiting in a long line for Starbucks to, uh, you know, being in combat. Um, so it's been overused. The, um, technically, however, um, there, are, there is a medical definition of what post-traumatic stress disorder is. And um, there are some symptoms that are very, um, the very distinct uh, to post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, for example, this is just one and not in any priority. But one of the symptoms for a lot of people with post-traumatic stress disorder is um, nightmares, uh, horrific nightmares. That, And not only are they terrifying and so terrifying that sometimes people are afraid to go to sleep, but also the kind of nightmares that sometimes people will, um, will uh, actually feel attacked in their sleep and will, will attack their sleeping partner if they have one. Um, it's not unusual for a, well, I've heard it many times from many people that, uh, to have a, uh, a spouse, uh, hit their loved one in bed, uh, during a nightmare, um, not realizing that they're asleep, not realizing that it's a nightmare. This is just one of several examples, um. The the, the, char- the main characteristics of post-traumatic stress disorder are, on the one hand, something called hypervigilance, which means to be constantly on guard for danger, and all human beings have this to some degree, uh, at least subconsciously, but with people who experience post-traumatic stress disorder, it's very uh, exaggerated, and So we hear about particularly military uh, people with PTSD who have come back from, uh, previously from Afghanistan or Iraq, that they uh, sometimes are too afraid to drive a car because of their fear that there could be uh, an explosion or some other bad thing that could happen. Um, And so sometimes people are so hypervigilant that they can't leave their homes um, because they are so afraid that something terrible is going to happen. Um, sort of an exaggerated reaction to a state of mind that anybody in combat must be in. Um, the other less discussed but just as prevalent characteristic is uh, a um, hyper avoidance, um, or in other words, a, um, a desire to, uh, rather than to confront potential threat to run away from it. And, and this, this also leads to uh, ultimately to seclusion and isolation that is, uh, that is very lonely and painful, but also not very useful. Um, and so the symptoms range, can, other symptoms can include um, very high anxiety, uh, very deep depression, suicidal thinking, uh, paranoia, uh, et cetera. And um, so there are lots of different aspects to post-traumatic stress disorder. And even though the symptoms are fairly common, uh, it takes the way that it, that it manifests in different people varies from person to person. That's why in this case, labels can be useful, but they can also not mm. be so useful.
1: And uh, emotional triggers become something they are running away from, or it should be like actual danger like someone walking down the street or are just like, can they feel in danger just because they are thinking is out of control?
0: Uh, yes. I mean, an example of what some people can experience. Uh, we've, we've noticed in our organization at East USA, we have noticed uh, some combatants be afraid to drive because they're afraid of, they have a memory of a uh, in an incident uh, in, a, in Iraq or Afghanistan uh, driving where driving was generally very very dangerous and a, a plastic bag will blow across the street for example and they will be um, you know they will be very uh, agitated and um, and sometimes terrified and um, so driving in particular can be a real uh uh, a, a situation where they're triggered fairly often, and this is why we've noticed in recovery that when people begin to recover, one of the things that many people notice is that they're able to drive again, for example, but driving in Iraq and Afghanistan is a very dangerous thing to do, and there are uh, a lot of people who were uh, experienced explosions and attacks um, while driving.
1: Trauma, and pe- uh, obviously there are degrees to trauma, but um, I would love to now talk about the burnout and it is very common, especially in the United States, obviously everywhere, but I would say commonly talked about, Not it's common everywhere. Uh, what is burnout? And it's also a stressful situation for people. They also have traumas. Maybe it comes from childhood trauma yes. or whatever they brought to that situation. It's still a stressful situation. And how do they take control over their lives and mind? And where do you start working with them? Is just first emotional sure. state or physical state, or what happens outside of them? Where do you start the conversation with people who suffer from sure. burnout?
0: Well, the way that that I see it the most is in working with entrepreneurs and um, executives in business. Although at the moment the the degree of burnout throughout the United States is at an all-time high. Um, Depending on which research you you cite, um, the rate of burnout with working people in the United States is 40 or 50%, and that is people who report that they feel burned out all the time. And then, again, burnout has a technical definition Um, The World Health Organization recently classified burnout as a distinct illness. Um, And like PTSD, unfortunately, burnout is a term that was first coined in the 70s by a psychologist to try to describe uh, mental and emotional and physical exhaustion for people in the medical field, specifically nurses. And he coined the term burnout. And since then, it's been brought into the, the vocabulary, the general vocabulary. And, and so people talk about being burned out all the time. Um, it's just been in the last year that the World Health Organization created a, um, a, or a, a designated uh, burnout as a bona fide illness, um, although it's been studied for many years since the early 80s. Um, there is a uh, professor at University of California, Berkeley, Christina Maslach, who's probably the best known um, researcher uh, and expert in workplace burnout, and she created something called the Maslach Burnout Inventory, which is the generally regarded as the gold standard assessment for burnout in the workplace. Um, but what we what we notice uh, the statistics or the characteristics or the symptoms that the WHO has come up with are basically three things that are unique to uh, burnout. One of them is um, complete exhaustion. And by this, we mean uh, not just exhaustion at the end of the day, but, but pretty much 24-7 24-7 exhaustion. So that when I talk to a lot of my clients, they say that they are uh, that they're completely exhausted at the end of the day. But even after getting a good night's sleep, they wake up exhausted, feeling exhausted. So there's never a feeling of recovery in terms of energy. There's a feeling of being completely drained and not having enough energy to do the job. Um, by the time people have experienced that level or that symptom of exhaustion, they're probably they've probably been in burnout for some time, but exhaustion is the thing that people notice first and foremost. Um, other characteristics are um, one of them that's that's very very common is a feeling of uh, of isolation. From the people that you work with and, and also potentially from other people. And this isolation can take the form of um, being, feeling uh, negative towards the people that you work for, or sometimes in its worst extent, um, th- there, there can be a feeling of real resentment and, um, and uh, anger and towards, uh, the company that you work for, the people that you work with and for even, uh, resentment towards your own, uh, customers and, uh, or your business partners or your investors. Um, and so this is, is another unique, um, characteristic of burnout. And so relationships tend to, uh, fray and, um, There's also a sense that the um, of uh, of unfairness um, uh, uh, that they're being that people are being treated in an unfair way, and in fact they may be being treated in an unfair way. Um, But there is a perception that um, that uh, your business colleagues and the business in in general is really being um, designed in a way to um, take advantage of you, and this is the fine line because in a lot of work situations, that's true. There's, or at least there's, an element of that truth. Um, so, uh, one of the things we found about people that are burned out is that there tends to be a very high level of um, very high standards that the individual sets for themselves, um, and usually an impossibly uh, an impossible to achieve level. Uh, of achievement, or we would say perfectionism in in some cases. There tends to be a a sense that um, the frustration is that I have too much work to do and I can't do it at a level that is uh, up to my own standards. And part of what has happened in COVID, at least in the United States, is that um, people cut staff almost immediately when COVID hit. And so it is true that, that people have been expected to do a lot more uh, with a lot less. Um, so it's not that these, that these feelings don't have elements of truth, um, but what ends up happening is, when by the time I talk to people that are burned out, is that they've lost all their motivation. Uh, they've lost the physical uh, energy But they've also lost the inspiration and enthusiasm that they formerly had um, to get up and do their jobs. And in some cases, it could be that, that that the job itself is no longer a fit for them. But more often, what we find is that once people are in burnout, they tend to drag this exhaustion and this demotivation with them into everything they do, including their home life. And that's where it also shows up is not just at work, but at home.
1: So does it start first mental, is it a mental um, challenge first? Is it how people look at things or is it just first, it's physically challenging for them. And then because they are so tired they cannot cope mentally anymore. Where does it happen first?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, Ani, it's sort of, it, it really is, is sort of both at once. So part of what we know is that, um, and this kind of goes to the treatment of, um, of burnout, but one of the things that we know about burnout is that people don't, um, don't allow themselves uh, the a, a period of recovery uh, that is necessary um, from stress. I mean, when you really boil it down, burnout is caused by unrelieved stress uh, day after day after day after day. At least in the United States, the standard for recovery from stress is that um, you get maybe two weeks of vacation a year. And the mythology sort of is that if you take these two weeks of vacation, you'll come back refreshed and a new person. Um, and yet what we know about the science of burnout and the science of exhaustion is that that's really not how human minds and bodies work. So, um, you know, the, the, primary, the primary trigger uh, for, um, for burnout is the perception, at least, of unrelenting stress. And so all day long, a lot of people from the moment that they wake up and even in their sleep, they're stressed about their work. They're worried about their work. They have the sense that they have more work than they can do, that they'll never catch up and, they can, and that they can't do it at the level that they need to do it, um, either to meet their own standards or their employee's standards. So two things happen at once. There's first, the, there's emotional and psychological overwhelm. Um, And there is also your body reacts to stress by producing a number of different hormones, including cortisol and adrenaline and um, also also some uh, pleasure um, hormones when you achieve tasks such as dopamine. And the idea is to try to uh, our brain creates chemicals to help us keep up with the perceived level of stress. The problem is that if you are st- if you feel that you are stressed at all times, your body depletes itself and it can't generate enough um, uh, adrenaline and, and cortisol and basically stress reaction hormones to keep up with twenty four hours of stress. And so we deplete our hormonal systems. So there's definitely a physical component to it. So what happens is that human beings um, compensate for exhausted stress hormones and exhausted physical tools to, comp- to cope with stress by drinking caffeine or, or taking nicotine or um, various forms of stimulants to try to compensate for the fact that their uh, adrenal systems and cortisol systems are depleted from being stressed 24-7. Um, and this leads to more and more exhaustion. There might be a spike in energy, followed by a crash. Um, And so this actually makes the exhaustion even worse. So part of what we've discovered is there are a couple of things that people can do uh, that they really need to do to uh, manage this perception of constant stress. And part of it is physical and biochemical and part of it is psychological. But one of the things that the research is very clear about is that we need to take many breaks during the day, um, so that our body has even two or three minutes of, uh, complete relief from stress. And, um, so we recommend that, um, that our, that our clients every half an hour, take at least uh, 10 minutes and, uh, or five minutes even, and get up from their desks and walk around and, um, and and get physically away from the source of stress. We teach a lot of different mindfulness techniques that will help people take a one-minute vacation or a two-minute vacation Um, because what's necessary, the research is very clear, is that there needs to be a complete uh, escape from the stress. There needs to be a complete relief of the stress. So it's very much like Olympic athletes that are training their muscles very hard. They have to have recovery periods between workouts. Otherwise they will tear their muscles. And metaphorically, it's the same for us in a working situation that if we don't take breaks, regular breaks, even short ones um, that we will Uh, ultimately do damage to ourselves and and prolong this exhaustion. So we have to give ourselves recovery periods. We also stress that diet is very important. And ultimately um, we try to get our clients to stop taking white sugar uh, in particular and reduce caffeine um, because it causes the energy crashes that actually compounds the exhaustion. Um, psychologically also what we really want people to do is there's a feeling of being, of having out of control stress, or in other words, um, that they no longer, that people feel as though they no longer have control over their lives, that they are constantly under attack by work stressors. And so one of the things we really emphasize is to help people, um, rediscover their, their own personal values, And instead of responding to their lives out of fear, basically, or out of trying to relieve stress, instead to try to uh, work and do the things they need to do in their lives in response to their own values or in the service of their own values. And to stop feeling victimized, which is the way a lot of burned out people feel, and instead to try to uh, live their lives from from the perspective of their own personal values and goals, um, so that they can take back their lives, um, take charge of their lives in effect and have less of a kind of out of control victim feeling.
1: Well, you said, uh, you teach them mindfulness skills, like taking one minute vacation. How does it look like to take a one minute vacation?
0: Well, one of the techniques that I found is very, very effective, um, and it's one of the techniques that we teach. We call the R&R technique, which in the U.S. would stand for rest and relaxation, but here it means release and – or re- relax and release. And it's really as simple as this. What we, what we want to do is um, to um, – the, 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 the cause of stress to a big degree is really us thinking and thinking about being overwhelmed and thinking about all of the things that we have to do. And the illusion sometimes is that we can do them all at once or that we should do them all at once. When in fact, we know we can only do one thing at a time. So what this technique does is help you return to your body and get out of your mind and, um, and um, and uh, and allow yourself release all of the tension that you have in your body. This only takes a few seconds, but the technique is simply this: you. Uh, the key is to notice when you're feeling disturbed for any reason, whether because of a disturbing an emotion, a disturbing thought, a disturbing event. Um, but the key is just to notice when you're disturbed, and when you're disturbed, what we recommend is that you pause notice that you're disturbed, inhale through your nose as deeply as you can and exhale through your mouth. And as you're doing it, visualize your heart opening and all of the energy, all of the stress energy leaving. And even if you only remember to do that, you know, a couple of times a day, um, it is a very, very effective technique. The the key is to realize that the stress is really mind-made um, it doesn't have any reality apart from that. It's our reaction to what's going on in the world and that we can take charge of our lives even as long as it takes to do that exercise, which is 10 seconds. And um, we can consciously release the, the uh, stress and basically the, the energy that's around us trying to protect ourselves. So when we can release this defensive energy Um, you know, when, when practiced as a discipline, um, this breathing technique is incredibly powerful, as simple as it is. And again, it only takes 10 seconds to do, but I find that with my clients who often do it 10 times a day or 20 times a day, they feel much, much less stressed and, and exhausted by the end of the day, um, than they would otherwise. But the key is to notice that your, your mind and body are experiencing this stress and then to consciously uh, release it, which can be done in just a few seconds if you decide to do that.
1: So I, um, whatever you just said is so true. Our mind creates all this problem. And even sometimes I tell myself when I'm really upset about something and I know I shouldn't be as upset. I know where it comes from. And I tell myself, like, this is a bit like illusion whatever I'm upset about, like it's just an illusion created because of my past experiences or whatever. But so often people, um, even if you tell them that this is not a, a big problem and they see it bigger, they feel it like we are minimizing their pain. Because as for children, when I have a toddler, he's four-year-old and he cries about stuff that it just, I don't know, for him it's real. But I tell him like, Yes, I'm pretty sure you're upset and I try to live in his reality because he's just too emotional to live in mine or to be logical. So what do you tell, obviously, to adults when they are truly making their problem bigger and because they are focusing on the problem, the problem gets bigger rather than if you focus on a solution, the solution will get bigger. What is your, so the words you use, or yes. the conversation, because it's so, you have to be so careful while you're talking to people who have this intense reality created in their mind. What yes. are some words to use with them?
0: The, when people are triggered and upset, the thing that, that they're experiencing is being, we say, in their heads. And t- literally what's, what's happening is that they're reliving something uh, that's a, a memory or a habit pattern um, in their minds. And so the, it's difficult sometimes to persuade people to do this, uh, to instead of focusing on their minds, to focus on the, their bodies uh, and what they're actually experiencing right now in the present moment. Um, but one of the exercises that I use when people are very triggered is I ask them to listen, to close their eyes and listen uh, and try to identify five different noises. And um, similarly, I would ask them to identify, if they can, five different smells. Um, And I would ask them to, with their fingers, to just notice what they're experiencing, what they feel in the sense of touch right now. I ask them to... To think about the temperature in the room, and the idea is to not only bring them back into their bodies and out of their minds, but also to um, have them encounter what's really happening in this moment, um, because it feels these memories, or uh, you know, we could call them even flashbacks or triggered moments, are not happening. It, you know, not really. Uh, they feel as though they're really happening right now in this moment, but in fact, all it all it is is a memory. You know, we're we're taught to, uh, as parents, we teach our children to try to take our brains seriously, or in other words, um, we're we're taught uh, we we teach children uh, not to walk in the street, for example, not to go into the street because it is dangerous. Um, There's nothing dangerous about the street per se, uh, but we teach children that essentially is that the street can be dangerous. And so as children, we remember that uh, because we're told that as a young age, when we have very few filters and very little executive brain uh, activity, where we can discriminate and understand what a parent is saying. So when we're told that, you know, the street is dangerous or perhaps dogs don't, you know, don't pet the certain dog, a dog might be dangerous. Our little tiny brains take that literally. And we think the street is dangerous and dogs are dangerous, maybe, right? And so, or strangers are dangerous. And so these, we teach these things to children to keep them safe. And our intent is, is not negative, but as children, we have very little ability to filter or Uh, in or out the instruction that we get from our parents. And our brains are designed for one thing and one, well, two things, to keep us to survive and to reproduce. Those are the two things that our minds are designed to do. And they do a lot of other things, but their most important use uh, evolution from an evolutionary standpoint is to keep us alive and for us to reproduce. And so that's going to be the dominant, you know, the dominant activity of our brains and, and survival is really, you know, is really key. And so uh, a street may be perfectly safe, but if we're taught as a child that it's dangerous, we're going to have a certain attitude towards the street and, uh, or dogs or strangers or whatever. So, um, and, and if we have memories that are very uh, deep, and um, have make a deep impression on us, we will carry those with us, especially if the memory is of something that, that seems to suggest physical danger uh, to us. And in today we have no dinosaurs chasing us. So we, we sometimes take emotional threats. Uh, our, our minds take emotional threats as seriously as we used to take uh, physical threats. And so have, having, uh, being rejected by somebody emotionally can feel like death and we can try to, uh, avoid it. And every time we're in a similar situation, our minds will, will say danger, danger, danger. So, you know, the it's, it's our, our, and our brains are meant to be taken seriously. Our minds and our thoughts are meant to be taken seriously because there is some truth in all of that, and our minds want to serve to survive. But when we're little children, we don't have any of that perspective. We simply can't know that. We take all the, all the input that we get, even if we misunderstand the input, uh, but we take it in, we swallow it whole. Uh, we're not capable of discerning it or criticizing it or thinking about it critically. So... That's why we learn later as adults that our minds are very good tools if we want to split the atom or change a tire. Uh, You know, our our minds are very useful in the same way that a microwave is useful and a blender is useful and a computer is useful. Um, But we don't, hopefully we learn over time that we don't have to take it any more seriously than an appliance any more seriously than we would a refrigerator. Uh, or a television. Um, But sometimes because it's meant to keep us alive, most of our wiring is about staying alive. And and so when our mind says this might threaten your survival, it gets our full attention, even if it's erroneous. And it's the same way with burnout. We think sometimes that if I don't complete this task um, at work, and it's especially true with work because most of us are uh, from the time we were children, are meant to associate work with survival. If we don't work, we don't eat. If we don't eat, we don't live. And so from a very young age, in subtle ways and in very overt ways, we're told that work is survival. And if you don't work, you die. And so, so you know, in a lot of us, at least in America, I hope this isn't true in Georgia, but in the U.S., the idea is that if you don't work, you die. And so, um, uh, for a lot of us anyway. And so if you have more work to do than you can possibly do, or you feel like that, then that can feel like you are, that your survival is being threatened in just the same not, way. We as, are not
1: created to work. We are not created- You're to very work fortunate. Nine to five. No, humans are not created. To work from nine to five the jobs they don't love we're not just like created for that so obviously so many people have stress high stress levels because they are not only working from nine to five so many people are working from nine to eight from nine to seven in Georgia people work from nine to nine p.m.
0: there's no nine
1: to six or nine to five majority of nail salons majority of like places stores there are so many 24 hour stores in the uh, georgia majority of the people and they, it, i remember when i used to go to target or my local shop they were always see like different faces here you see one person from 9 a.m to 9 p.m
0: oh, so, no.
1: yes and they are working so much and at least in the u.s the payment people get um yes. they can leave and eat and pay rent in Georgia. The payment is not even enough for the. I don't know how people live. I truly don't know how people live. I remember when I yes. lived in when I lived in Hawaii, and my first I bought food and into grocery some store. I was like, how people live here? And then then I came back here, and I'm like, how people live here? There are some places where people make so much less money than it costs to live there. And obviously, we are not created to work all the time and we are not created for all this life. I go to the villages and I see people so much happier and so much peaceful. They don't have much. They are still working, but they are working on their land and they are taking naps in between. And they seem to have simpler life, but they are so much more peaceful. And so they are enjoying their life. They are in service. They cook, they clean women, and also they work. They have animals and those people are so much happier than so many uh, people that I saw in the U S that make a lot of money. They feel, seem and feel their energy is already stressful. So it just, there is, it is normal, I think, for people to feel tired and stressed. Yes. they are so burned out.
0: Yes. Well, and, you know, as you've discovered and as I've discovered, um, being able to run a remote business or an online business is, you know, one of the ways at least to take back um, some freedom, uh, to, to take back more control over your life, um, to provide tremendous value to your clients, uh, but to do so in a much more efficient way. And um, to be able to live in Hawaii or Georgia or the U.S. or wherever you want, um, so there are some there are some answers for sure. And I'm seeing more and more and more people now who I was talking to a colleague this morning who, after a 25-year career in corporate America, is quitting. Uh, I think she quit. She quits today, maybe, and uh, she's going to start an online business and. She will simplify her life. She will reduce her expenses, but she will also reduce her stress dramatically. So um, this is the opportunity.
1: Yes, where can people find you if they want to know more about you or if they feel burned out or if they have PTSD or you are doing so much more than we covered here. So where can people find you?
0: Oh, thank you. Uh, The best place to find me is uh, my executive coaching website, which is double dare you uh dot .us for united states so it's double dare you dot .us and there you'll find information about burnout and lots of other things
1: if, is there any uh, before we finish and i ask you my last question is there any topic you wanted to cover and i didn't get the chance to ask you the question about it
0: ah uh, it's a great question um Well, I'd love to know more about Georgia. I'd love to ask you a question about Georgia, but this probably isn't the time. No, well, uh, you can what, ask. What is me. the What is the the mountain? If range I can, in...
1: okay, that's what I was what planning the... to say. If I can answer it, and I was planning to say, don't ask me a geographic question.
0: Uh, <laughs> there are some There are some beautiful mountains in in Georgia. Yeah. I can't think of the name. Anyway,
1: yeah.
0: Uh, so the, the, the cost of living in Georgia is, is low though, isn't it?
1: Yes, it is very, meaning like for the income people have here, yes. it's very, it's high, but if you have income in the dollars, um, yes. I, I don't know if you know, I don't, what, what is his YouTube channel name? Nomad Capitalist? He yes, yeah, a YouTube channel. I, know he, he owns, I know him, He owns He owns a home in Georgia.
0: Oh really?
1: Yes, and he really he even in one of his videos he said that Georgia is one of the best places to live if you have income yes. in like US dollars because it's beautiful, food is amazing, and I'm speaking when you have income in dollars. Yes. Apartments yes. are cheap. You can get an apartment for a month like um, for two hundred and fifty dollars. Wow. Or a whole apartment, like three bedroom apartment, two bedroom wow. apartment yes so it's very cheap if you have money <laughs> but for the yes. people for the people um who work here and have income here it's not the situation as it is always in countries where yes
0: that is
1: the situation okay. here i could answer okay. that question
0: <laughs> very good
1: this is the question i ask everyone on top of your okay. heart or so leave me and listeners with Either one word or one sentence or two sentence, just whatever comes right now.
0: Um, you know, I guess the word is freedom. And and the, you know, the, the more work that I do with burnout and the more work I do in general is that we are we are free to follow our values and not be slaves to our minds. And um, we can be free right now.
1: Thank you so much, Scott, for being like it. My Thank pleasure. you so much for giving me such practical answers. And you you are very knowledgeable at what you are talking about. And you have a lot of tools, which I like to give people tools. And you have a lot of, like, you are explaining the why's behind it and how's. And I really enjoy um, when people do that because it just...
0: My it's pleasure. Helpful
1: my brain and for listeners.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Great to meet you. And I really appreciate being on the show.
1: Thank you so much. And thank you listeners for listening. And until next time,